Great. You will find this week's portion by Yeshev. We're actually going to start on chapter 38 on page 249. Chapter 38 of Bray Sheet. Page 249. Let's say a blessing. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah Amen. By the way, do you know the names of the people next to you? Have you, have you met? Did you meet? Great, great. Great. Shelly. Super. Hi, Julia. Glad you're here. Here's some seats for you. All right. So I have taken this. Uh, oh, yeah. I've taken this fabulous opportunity with all of you each week, this so far, to focus on the women in the story. And um, in Parshat Vayeshev, this week's portion, we get introduced, you know, Joseph is 17 years old, and he's dad's favorite, and he has a coat of many colors, and his brothers hate him, and all that, that whole jo- incredible Joseph story. But then, after they sell him down to Egypt, to the... Uh, caravan, um, after throwing him in the pit and deciding not to kill him, uh, and his brothers sell him into slavery, the action shifts in chapter 38. Um, now, in the, in the space of the whole narrative, this interlude is here for a very important reason, which we'll talk about. Um, and the action shifts to Judah, uh, and Judah and Tamar. So Tamar gets... Hi, Bob. Tamar, which means date palm, is one of my favorite names. Um, Tamar gets, is another protagonist, another female protagonist in Genesis. And is, so I want us to study the story of Judah and Tamar in a way that often gets skipped over because the Joseph narrative is so central and compelling. But that this year, I'm going to just keep looking at all the stories that have women in them and see what we disabuse ourselves of the, uh, of the kind of un- unreflect, unthought out ideas we have about these characters. Because they're very rich and very engaged and very uh, agents, have a lot of agency. Uh, great. Okay. So, I'll also note that the next chapter, chapter 39, is also focused on a male and female character, Potiphar's wife, who wants to seduce Joseph, and Joseph refuses. So I have a feeling the fact that these stories are next to each other means that they're supposed to be telling us something about each other in the stories too, but we'll get to that if we have time. So here's what happens in chapter 38, verse 1. Around that time... Judah parted from his brothers and fell in 
with an Adulamite named Chira. Okay, don't turn the page yet, because Vayahi uh, Ba'etahi, in around that time, Judah Yered Me'et Echav. He descended. Now again, geographically, that's because Adulam is down by Beit Shemesh, and they were up in the hills of Hebron, but that's always significant in Torah. The Judah is, Judah is having some kind of descent, um, descent. And he pitched his tent, Vayet means to pitch your tent, uh, with this Adulamite man named Chira. I was looking up Adulam. We don't know much about it. Uh, it's a place where David hides in the cave of Adulam later. And I think that's significant. And you'll see why, because this story is a story that also tells us about King David's lineage. So I think that's one of the reasons it's in there. Okay, now turn the page. There, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her to wife and coupled with her. And she became pregnant and bore a son. He named him Er. That's Ayin Resh, which comes from the root to awaken, I think, you know, Hitoruri. Again, she became pregnant, bore a son, and she named him Onan. Yet again, she became pregnant and bore a son, and she named him Shelach, Shela, Shela. And when she gave birth to him, Judah was in Chaziv. Bechaziv. Okay, good. So first of all, what's Judah doing falling in love with a Canaanite? Does this like, if you remember any of the other stories we just read over the last few weeks? Uh, Who else could he fall in love with? What? Yeah, but... All those uh, Shechemites that they just captured, aren't those supposed to be... Well, they're... I, I, there's something going on here that I don't. I, I want to think about because um, first Abraham says to his servant Eliezer, "Do not take a wife for my Isaac from among the Canaanites," and sends him back to the old country. And then Rebecca, um, Esau marries a Canaanite, and Rebecca says to Isaac, "This is making me sick. Send Isaac back to." our kins, kinsmen, kinsmen, so that he doesn't marry one of these local women. Well, I don't know. Um, now, again, I don't need the stories to be all consistent. You know that. But I just noticed that when I was reading it. And so Judah marries a Canaanite woman. And when it says, oto, And he was in Chziv when she uh, uh, gave birth to him. Is Chaziv a place? Well, um, maybe Achziv, a city southwest of Jerusalem. But Chaziv means um, uh, falsehood, um, deceit. Um, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't have my dictionary with me. Um, we might have to ask Rabbi Google. Uh, sure, sure, thank you. So, again, some, that word, place names, names in general, are all symbolic in the Torah. Uh, wait till you see where Tamar is hanging out, a place called Enaim. Eyes. She's sitting at the entrance to Enaim, Petach Enaim, and they say she's sitting at the entrance to a place called Enaim in the translation. She's sitting at a place called Opening Your Eyes. 
It's like, that's the way place names work in the Torah. They're, think of a fairy tale, think of a folk tale or a myth. The, the names are, are much less importantly physical places than they are states of mind. Thank you. That's so kind of you. Okay, so. Um, there it is. Kazav, to lie, deceive, prevaricate. Hichziv is to disillusion, frustrate, falsify, disappoint. That's where Judah's hanging out. You'll see why that might be significant. Uh, now, the kids grew up, and Judah now took a wife for heir, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But That, that was in Hasib? Um, well, we don't know where he is now. Uh, um, and maybe... Yeah, maybe it's all happening in the place of falsehood and disappointment and deceit. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. What does er mean? Er, ayin reish, means to uh, be awake. Um, so I'm not sure what the significance of that, or maybe it means something else that I just don't even know. Uh, but let's look up those things, too. So, sorry. Er. Um, awake, watchful, um, on guard, vigilant. That's interesting. Okay. But an R is, with an I in race, R is an enemy or adversary. Okay. Oh, this is really It's really interesting. This, the whole thing is juicy. Oh, it's very yes. juicy. <laughs> he took away for Er his firstborn, but Er, Judah's firstborn, uh, was wicked in the sight of yod Vavhe, and uh, God brought about his death. We, we don't know what. Wait, that's all we know. They didn't, they didn't have offspring. Then Judah said to his second son, Onan, uh, couple with your brother's widow, unite with her, and raise up offspring for your brother. That is the ancient rule. It's called leveret marriage. If your, if your next of kin, male, uh, failed to have offspring and died, it was, it's the sibling's responsibility to marry, this is in biblical times, to marry the widow so that her, the brother's line, who's died, can have, can continue, right? So the, the brother who then fulfills this responsibility doesn't, the child is not technically his. And he doesn't, uh, it's not his line. So, uh, and you could have more than one wife, so he would apparently, you know, he might take another wife as well. So that was fulfilling what was considered his responsibility in that society. But, <laughs> but. They, they couldn't inherit. I mean, the, those children could not inherit from this uncle. Not from the uncle. The issue was keeping the brother's name alive because um, he failed to have children. And so, so no, they, they don't inherit from the uncle. But they would inherit the father's portion They inherit their father's portion from the grandfather. Yeah. Would the son, the offspring then be Ben? 
whose name would be used? I don't know. Yosef Ben. That's a good question. I don't know whose name it would be. Um, but uh, that's to maintain the, the um, inheritance laws in that clan society. That's how it worked. Um, and Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he coupled with his brother's wife, he would waste his seed on the ground in order not to produce offspring for his brother. He would spill his seed. Um, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Eternal, who brought about his death as well. So, in the dictionary, there is a word, onanism, onanism which is a word for spilling your seed if you're a man, for masturbation, for... Uh, and. Uh, that's where it comes from, this very line in the Torah. And um, so uh, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, stay as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. And he thought, lest he too die like his brothers. So Tamar went and stayed in her father's house. So. Judah, according to these ancient uh, practices, has left Tamar in a state of limbo because she's married into Judah's clan. And Judah says, wait until my son Shelah, who is not of age yet, grows up and then you'll marry him. Clearly, with uh, 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 Satovoce saying, I'm never going to do that. I lost lost two boys to this girl, right? So Judah leaves her in a state of limbo where she has to live as a widow and has no opportunity in that society to um, become a mother or a wife. Make sense? Yeah. If, if there are no brothers, is she free then? Or? No, because there are next of kin. Oh, okay. um, and when we get to the story of Ruth, which is related to this story, okay. uh, when, when uh, Ruth comes back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, her husband having died, they look for a next of kin, and they find Boaz, who agrees to fulfill the responsibility. So yeah, it's more about a clan than just a single nuclear family. Time passed, and Shua's daughter, that is Judah's wife, died. She never gets named in this story. And after Judah was consoled, he went up to his sheep shearers. He and his friend, Hira, the Adulamite. So, I wonder who Hira is. Yeah. Toward Timnah. Timnah is a place. When Tamar was told, look, your father-in-law is going up toward Timnah to shear his sheep. She discarded her widow's garb, covered herself up with a veil, wrapped herself up and stationed herself at Petach Enayim, the entrance to Enayim on the way to Timnah. Enayim means eyes. Petach Enayim means the opening of the eyes. She stations herself at a place called the opening of the eyes, um, for she saw that Shelah had grown up, yet she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he took her for a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So he turned toward her on the road and said, 
Pray, let me couple with you. I doubt he said it that way. <laughs> Wait a minute. He said, Hava na avo elecha. Oh, yeah, let me, let me sleep with you. Um, and he was not aware that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me to couple with me? He replied, I will send you a kid from the flock. But she said, oh, only if you give me a pledge until you send it. In other words, I don't want to take your word for it. Give me something in pledge. Uh, he asked, what sort of pledge should I give you? She then said, your signet seal, your cord, and the staff in your hand. Okay, the signet seal was unique to Judah. It was, uh, that's what, that's, that was his, how he signed things. So um, his cord and his staff, these were like giving him, her, his driver's license and his credit card. Well, he must have really wanted her. He'd been, it'd been a while, it appears. Um, so he gave them to her and coupled with her, and she became pregnant by him. See, soap operas are just as old as you can get. And when he asked the people of her place, where is that courtesan, the one at the crossroads? They replied, there wasn't any courtesan here. Because she came and she went, right? She just, she was, that wasn't her habitual uh, place of work because she wasn't a courtesan. Um, he then returned to Judah and said, uh, oh, oh, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped. Uh, when he got up and left, she discarded her veil and put on her widow's garb. But when Judah sent the kid by way of his Adulamite friend, to redeem the deposit from the woman, he did not find her. And when he asked the people of her place, where is that courtesan, the one at the crossroads? They replied, there wasn't any courtesan here. He then returned to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Moreover, the people of the place said, there has never been a courtesan here. Judah then said, um, well, let her keep it, lest we become a laughingstock. I did send this kid, though you could not find her. Okay? So that's what Judah says. It's like, well, let's just drop this whole thing. I'll get a new signet. Well, then, after about three months, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the whore, and now she has even become pregnant by whoring. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Yeah, that was the punishment. Brought out she was, but she sent to her father-in-law saying, the man to whom these belong made me pregnant. Acknowledge whose signet seal, cords, and staff these are. Judah then recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I, for certainly I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he never touched her again. When she was giving birth, lo, she had twins in her belly. And just as she was giving birth, one put a hand out, and the midwife took it and tied a crimson thread on its hand, saying, this one came out first. But when it pulled the hand back, look, its brother came out. 
So she reached, so she said, what a breach you have breached. And she named him Peretz, which means breach. A Peretz is a breach, an out, a, a breaking through, a bursting forth. Afterward came his brother, on whose hand was the crimson thread, and she named him Zarach. Zarach means to shine like the sun. Okay, so that's the whole chapter. We just read it. So, Tamar says, Yeah, uh, uh, the man who made me pregnant, these belong to him. And Judah recognizes that they're his and then comes to his senses <clears throat> and realizes that he has broken the law and been unfair to Tamar, and he takes responsibility for it. And uh, so what do you think about this story? I have a lot to say, but uh, I wonder what, what your reactions are. What law did he break by being with a courtesan? What, he didn't break a law by being with a courtesan. He broke a law by not giving his youngest son when he came of age to Tamar. So Tamar was forced to, because of her legal limbo, to take to go into uh, resort to subterfuge because she has no legal standing, and uh, um, uh, um, put put herself in costume in order to get what's hers, which is pregnant through the house of Judah. Um, so she's just getting what's rightfully hers. Would you expect her to sort of confront Judah by saying, well, you didn't give me your son, so therefore, or, or, or something like that? I mean, she does, there's nothing like that in here. Yeah, that, no, she does, but she does it privately. That's understood. That's understood. Yeah, so the, <coughs> once again, the women have to advance the story. In other words, it's really important to understand here that Peretz, Tamar's son, is the, is the ancestor of King David. We know that from elsewhere in the Bible where King David's lineage is listed. For the, Torah, for the Torah, King David is the whole reason, in many ways, this is happening, to get us to the point where we are a, 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 a sovereign people in our own land. Remember, because we're starting as wanderers and slaves. So one of the, the main narrative thrusts of the Bible is how we got getting to King David and the, and the, the house of David, the monarchy of David. So uh, just one second, Pauline. So... Um, uh, the fact that we know that Peretz is an ancestor, is a direct ancestor of King David, um, says to us once again, like Rebecca, having to make sure that Jacob gets the blessing, like the, like the midwives and Miriam and Yocheved, making sure that baby Moses is saved, they can't do it by directly confronting the patriarch or the king. They can't. It won't work, apparently. And so, they, because they have no, a lot of this is about what's legal, what's, and they have no legal standing as women. They are, peop, they are simply members of the house of Abraham, or the house of, right, and it's the patriarch for, who is the adjudicator, the law, the authority, right? That's what a patriarchy is. So, 
in order to, but, but one of the interesting things about the, the stories in Genesis for me and in Exodus is that in order to advance this subversive narrative that is the Torah, it's a subversive narrative. It's a narrative that says the youngest, the weakest, the littlest, the one you wouldn't, the runt, is the one that God wants to be the, our ancestor. And over and over, they're not recognized as such. And yet, interestingly, it's frequently the women in these stories who subvert the, social, nat, the, the uh, standing social order, but they can only subvert it subversively. <laughs> they can't do it by having a revolution. That's not the situation here. And Tamar seems to fit into that mold to me. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah. Uh, it's crucial that Judah, it's crucial that the house of Judah produce offspring. Crucial to the, to the people telling this story centuries later. Um, and uh, because it's from Judah that the house of David is going to emerge. And so they tell these stories about all of these, it's not a straight path at all, which I find very interesting. And it's often not the men who seem to be tuned in to the divine will, as it were, when I say divine will, to the, the what's supposed to happen next. It's these women characters, and Tamar is another woman who drives the narrative forward with empowerment, right? She takes whatever is at her disposal, which is not much. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. She deceives Judah and then demands a pledge from him that will identify him later in order... That's all... It's an amazing tactic, don't you think? Okay, now, now you and... One, two, three. I just will say two things. What you started out with, that um, Judah took a Canaanite woman. Yep. Only because I started reading this history all over again. And that was also necessary because... In the early Bible, you're looking at a group of different tribes from different places that have to become these people of Israel. And the only way to make that happen in, in any historical sense that could be looked at was that at this time, there were these different groups of people, not only the Canaanites, but tribes in Egypt, subversive people that were slaves to whatever. So that's one thing. The other thing that I, I, I need to, that I'd like, like to notice about Tamar is that we don't know. She doesn't say she went out to be a harlot. She went out to check to see if the guy she was supposed to be betrothed to has gotten old enough because she heard they were back in town. Oh, and I didn't notice that. She notices that he was old enough and that Judah did not give him to her to betroth, then, and we don't know what goes on in her mind, but we can maybe guess two things will have happened. Either she sees Judah and says, okay, I, can, I, I need to do this, I can do it this way. Oh, she saw that Shayla had grown always, up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Blackmail always works for women or for people that are not in a place of power. In a, in a situation where you don't have... Leverage. You need some leverage. The, the, that's leverage. And she was smart enough, God bless her, to make leverage to take some sign that would be 
the identifying mark that it was Judas. Yeah, yeah. Which is quick thinking on her part. I'm saying that, yeah. Gail, and then uh, Harris, and then Jay. So I'm just curious why Judah didn't want to give... Because two of his sons had died. He was afraid he would die. So he was afraid... This was his only last son. Yeah, yeah. Harris? Yeah. um, Maybe you see maybe blackmail, but I coined it a little differently. She outsmarted them. Good word, good word. She outsmarted him. Very nice. Very nice. But it would appear, it, first of all, it makes a much better story than just sitting down and having a conversation. But I would also posit that she wasn't in a position to confront him. Well, she had to outsmart him. Well, but, uh, at, yes, at the time, women in general are not in a position. Exactly. But they accomplish things being in that position, so they have to outsmart the people who have power over them. That's a much better word. That is a much, that's a much better word. Yeah, they have like, to outsmart them using whatever resources they have. It's mm-hmm. like chess, like, she's like three steps ahead, you know. She sees the board, what's going on, and she's like, okay, I gotta do this, so this can go here and there. Right, think about Rebecca. Tamar and Rebecca seem to have some things in common. First, they both are the ones who essentially manipulate the action in order for the outcome that the Torah needs. But they also both have twins, which is an interesting parallel. There's something about Tamar and Rebecca that links them in that they have twins and one's trying to get out first and the other. So the story continues. The Re- whatever that is, I, I, there's a real link between Rebecca and Tamar. Uh, whose hand was, was next? Um, oh, Jay, and then Helen, and then, and yeah. Jay, go ahead. So, so just to take a, a, a high look at this in a summary, um, which strikes me as, as being very unusual situation, that, that there's some doc, tribal doctrine somewhere in, in, this, in this thing where, where if your brother dies, the brother can, as they, the word they use here, couple with the wife. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if... Can, the, actually, mu- must, should. Must, mm-hmm. must. Just to carry down... If there are no offspring. Just to carry down the uh, lineage. And the word they use, if in fact she couples with the father-in-law, it's okay to couple with the brother-in-law for some ethical reason, but it's not a cool thing to couple with the father-in-law because then she's a whore. And it's also considered incest in in these relationships. It's considered incest. Mm -hmm. But... No, I'm, I'm just trying to follow this. But if, um, if in fact, the father-in-law uh, in this scenario, uh, um, when, when she confronts him and say, hey, you're the father of this child, that makes it okay, it seems. It's no longer incest. Um, it's no longer incest because he, had, he was in the wrong because he didn't give his son. She is more in the right than I. He can't make a claim against her because he had already violated his responsibilities. Um, he, there's, there's something here that, uh, there's a piece of this puzzle here that just doesn't compute in my head. Mm. Because it seems, you know, just looking at it from a viewpoint of ethics in itself, the, the ethical, it's, it's, it's ethically okay. It's, you're doing the right thing, it's a must, it's a mandate. The couple with the brother-in-law, but not the father-in-law. 
I think a father-in-law somehow should be in the loop because <laughs> because, the, because the father because the father-in-law can easily do this anyway. Okay, Jay, <laughs> but that's not how it was. <laughs> Why? Let's just say that many cultural mores are not logically consistent. Uh, and if they were, our lives would be very different than they the are now. Because could, could, could easily get out of it just by saying, hey, you were, you were right, I was wrong, on a, on a million scenarios. Right, so can we say that you're correct, and, but then just move on, because we're not going to get anywhere with this. <laughs> because what I'm saying is, no, these laws aren't any more logically co- consistent than so many of our own mores about what's considered appropriate relationship and what's considered inappropriate. So it's not going to stand up to logic. Is what I what I'm saying, and I'm I'm sorry. Talk, talk to but Woody the Allen. Not <laughs> yeah, consistency. No ethics. Ethics. The word is ethics. Well, but we could no, say it's uneth. Right. We could ethics. say it's unethical it to. Rec- it depends. You, it depends on your cultural of bias. Course, of course. Of course. Yeah. But 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 here it's ethically okay with the brother-in-law, but it's not ethically. Okay. Apparently yes. Okay. So let it, let it be. Let it be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anne and then Helen and then uh, 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 Diane. How did Ona know that the offspring would not be his? Because he was fulfilling a legal obligation to provide offspring right. for his deceased brother. Exactly. So, so he is not the legal parent mm-hmm. in that case. Oh. He is providing seed oh, so, that, so that so that. He would not be the father. He would be the substitute husband for that birth. It's like a surrogate. He's a donor. Surrogate. So he couldn't win no matter what. Well, it depends on his attitude. Uh, if, okay with okay, his attitude. If he was okay with it. Okay. Onan was not a good guy. He was thinking, hey, if Tamar doesn't have any offspring, then my father's inheritance is going to be divided in two ways instead of three. Oh. But if I do this, I'm giving up like... Uh, huge chunk of my inheritance. Oh. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Oh, Am I making sense? Was. Oh, now yeah. I understand why he didn't want to do this. All about money. money. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Uh, all those goats, we should say. Uh, goats. Oh. All that property. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Helen? It, it just seems like all these women that you're... Every, every time they, they move the story forward, it was always in uh, promoting their son. Which son? Well, Sarah with uh, Isaac. Right. She, if she didn't do what she did. That's right. That's right. That's right. But Rebecca. And then, and then Rebecca with the picking. Um, she had two sons. So, but she, but she wanted the favorite son. The favorite. Was be the favorite. Right, right. The one that God had so told she her what needed. To. That's right. And now Tamar, mm-hmm. whether she knows it or not. She is doing what she's doing for her son, so that That's she, right. she will have a son. So it's, the woman is always—it's always the woman and then the son. Not always, but often. Well, I mean, in the stories we're studying, in, in many of the stories, it seems that it's the woman who is somehow either aware of, or intuiting, or driving the divine plan. Which I think is cool because I, I'm saying it again that. I think our view of women in the Bible is a colored, I'll repeat this, by millennia of sexualizing them, demonizing them, making them into stories that they're temptresses, 
or uh, somehow, in other ways, un, you know, a problem. And in these stories, the women are not a problem. The women are essential. They're agents. Of the, they have agency. They just don't have external power in a patriarchy. That's one of the things I want, I'm exploring here. So and thank you for pointing that out, Helen. The agency of women in the Bible. I like it. Mm-hmm. That could be the topic of your next paper. Thank you. Maybe they weren't judging women negatively. Maybe they were just describing full-blooded characters. Full, full. I don't mean blood because these are more sort of like these are these re, these sort of range into the sort of uh, mythical, but fully developed characters that we, through our sexist lens, are unable to recognize until we peel our layers away. We say, "Well, look, the, the women are so." Wimpy in these, or I'm used to how many times you read the stories and reacted to the way the women are treated. But the writers of this story, maybe they are a pre Hellenistic society that doesn't think of women as evil temptresses or. Um, I think they recognize that the women had a lot of power, just yes. not legal power. Yes, yes. And that would be true throughout history, right? That, the, that, uh, that, uh, you know, I mean, now it's a joke. Now it's a joke that the, the, a joke, more than a joke, it's, it's an archetypal thing of Archie Bunker, you know, thinking he's in charge when, you know, uh, Edith knows just what to say or how to get Archie to, you know, do a, you know, it's a classic story. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Right. And so the writers of the Torah are describing their world in which women are powerful. They're just not legally powerful. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, Julie. Um, I was wondering, um, it, it reminds me of something about with the Orthodox. Uh, they have, I, I remember, I could be wrong, but they say something about women don't need to study because naturally they are uh what like uh, fluid uh expressions of so there's really a link here so let me let me you're right you're right the 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 explanation yeah different relationship to god than men do the explanation that the ultra-orthodox community uses for why women are not required (laughs) to fulfill public commandments, lead in prayer, be, you know, uh, have, have time-bound commandments, so the commandments that require that you pray at this time of day. And the, the, the reason that ultra-Orthodoxy gives to that is because women have a more direct connection to the divine and don't need all of that structure in order to maintain their connection to God. Okay, on one level... That might be true. On another level, it sounds pretty like pretty slimy apologetics to me for keeping women out of the male sphere. Uh, So um, I think they're both true. I don't think what they're saying is a complete falsehood, and I also think what they're saying also it gets used in order to keep women out of those positions of power. 
So, I think, do you know what I'm saying? I think they're both true, yeah. listening to you right now. Yeah. Oh, Harris, uh, Bob can't teach you. Talk, uh, can't hear you. Talk a little louder. I turn the ear things up. It's okay. He doesn't have a, Bob. He doesn't have a loud voice. He'll do his oh, best. So just talk to Bob. So I, I don't know if I can explain it, but you, you have the star of the story. Say it's a man, and then you want to get to the children. A lot of times it feels like the woman is just put there in the story to get from the star. Mm-hmm. To the children, uh, what you what were you just talking about to refresh me? Because I just was oh it, just about ultra orthodoxy just yeah. now. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I feel I, I feel that the woman has those flexibility because it goes from the star, the man again, to the children again. It gives her the ability to to care for the right. kids. Yep. Instead of coming out of the shul and spending four hours or six hours caring for the kids or making the meal, it's, it's again, see, it's just one way of looking at it. It's good. You're doing great. It allows the seed, it allows the family to perpetuate itself to get to the next Ben, Ben this, Ben this, Ben this. Mm-hmm. That's it. Thank you. I, I know somebody who uh, says... Uh, a mother uh, gets uh, enlightenment quicker than any man sitting in a cave because she has to actually, you know, go against her own needs even to, to raise her kids. And that, that to put yourself last is an ego eraser. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it hones you, it rounds you out, and it, it, it builds character and... and uh, like he said, the flexibility, the flexibility, to be able to attend to the children, no matter what else is going on. <laughs> and, and every every role has its with its positives, also has its dark shadow, mm-hmm. right? And we know that uh, you know, so that uh, the benefit uh, of say knowing what it means to give totally of yourself and to bring life into the world, and to also has a shadow side of losing yourself. And your identity, and oh. the same with men. It's like you know, being right. uh, being the visible leader and the hero, and that has a shadow side, which is that you lose track of where life comes from. What Could what you know? So that's all the point I want to make is that we're not. There's always going to be a dark side to all, all these roles. Sorry, what? God's God. We do God's will. So it, it, what about that whole thing about we're here to do God's will to to live out what God needs to live out and so it wouldn't be about we do God's will at our best a lot of the time we're too much absorbed with ourselves to be able to figure it out but we keep trying so like that's what makes for these stories is that the divine light shines out of cracks in the story and then we forget it again in our drama and then something else reminds us again it's always it's it we're not going to come up with the theory of patriarchy, for example, here, and then say, and that's what it is. We're reading a good story here. Yeah. There was recently a scientific article that I read where there's actually brain changes in women once they become a mother, and that your brain actually changes. And it, the changes in the brain actually separate yourself from the man you're coupled with, and... and 
put all of your effort and energy into your offspring, which explains a lot of why, I, I, I don't know if it was you who said that the women of the, the Bible or the Torah are constantly, it was about a, a, a mother and a son and promoting, promoting their heir or their child to greatness. And it's, it was very well explained in this scientific article why that might happen. Ah, thank you. Good. And what I want to point out is that in the stories of the Torah, almost always there's some obstacle to the next generation coming into being. Whether it's Sarah is barren or uh, whether Judah is unwilling to provide the husband or and that somehow uh, either through there's a barrier and to, to, our job is to somehow overcome that barrier to become generative. Yes? Um, on a whole other plane of this, I think it's really significant that the story happens um, around the time of Hanukkah and around the time of the winter solstice. To me, this is oh, is that the sheep shearing time? Mm-hmm. No, this is not about anything common. Oh, that it comes to us comes during to this us. time every year, right. In the cycle of readings, we always come to this reading right around now. Around now, Hanukkah and the winter solstice. So if you look at this, instead of thinking about physically men and physically women, but think about ourselves that we have a lunar aspect and a solar aspect. And so in the winter, we're hidden, we're quiet, we're dark. And in the summer, we're bright and streaming light. Judah, um, astrologically, is the lion, which is Leo, which is a summer aspect. And then um, Tamar then represents the lunar aspect, the one that then is veiled, is hidden. And sometimes the light is so blinding, it doesn't see. It's just, it's this sort of blinding presence. So Judah, in a way, is blinded by his own um, brightness. Brilliance. <laughs> and, and so what's happening is here now we're seeing the um, power in the other aspect of what's in the dark time, but now a little bit of light is going to start to shine through. And that's really what's happening. So that oh, because the second brightness. child's name is Zarach, which Zarach. means to shine, a sun, a, a, a peretz means bursting through. Oh, peretz bursts through, and then Zarach is to shine. Oh, oh. So the, the sun bursts through and shines. And we're just getting the beginning. We're getting this now. Not yet. I mean, we haven't yet that right. point, because it, well, it won't happen until we get to the eighth day of Hanukkah that right. we start to really move into the coming of the light. So this is sort of this foreshadowing cool. of the coming of the light. Beautiful. 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 And a full moon in, in Hebrew is called Me'ubar, which means pregnant. The, the pregnant moon. Uh, that's so interesting. And so what happens if we actually live down under New Zealand or Australia? Then Karen would be telling a different story. Got it. Ah. Well, again, the place where these stories happen, right, the imagination is in our hemisphere. The imagination's in the northern hemisphere. When I was in New Zealand and celebrated uh, Purim there yeah. in uh, basically the late summer, I couldn't make any of the references I usually make to the cycle of the seasons. I had to, I could, you know, I love th- how the holidays match the cycles of the seasons and have a historical and a spiritual, and, and I had to leave the, okay. 
the, the seasonal one out. Pauline? No, what's really interesting is that, and I think about it in terms of when we read these stories, um, we, we have a sense of what comes before, and if we studied, we have a sense of what comes after. And um, it, to me, it's really interesting the different interpretations that are given that look to weave, either rightfully so or as part of what we need our history within our tradition to be. Because um, like one of them, and we call that Midrash, um, the teachings around the teaching. And one of the Midrashim about Tamar is that the reason she became the mother of the line of David was because she was so ethical and showed such humility when she let Judah know, I know who you are, you're the one who did it, and didn't do it publicly, but took care of his, his integrity, and that she did, did it in such a way that some of the commentary reads, so, but when I think about that, yeah, that's a good story too, you know? And it works, it works, and I wonder what else works, and back to what you started this Pasha with, so why suddenly did we stop the story ah, of Joseph? So let me say a couple of things, that. and we'll yeah. talk about that. So <laughs> I want to relate to, oh, you know what else? When um, uh, the Jews in Alaska <laughs> have to figure out when to light the candles when the sun is uh, dark all, right now, when it's dark 24 hours above the Arctic Circle, what do you do? And Jew, and then the Jewish astronaut who went up and had to figure out when to light candles when 90 minutes, every 90 minutes, the sun is rising again. <laughs> these, are, these, these, are modern, these are modern problems, which is why we have to keep the Jewish practices evolving, you know. Anyway, here's what I want to say to get towards what you said. So, um, so I never figured out what Peretz and Zarach, they burst forth and shone. And um, I think on the level of um, Judah, this, this is the pivotal chapter in Judah's development as a person. What was the last thing that Judah did when, when Jacob, Joseph was in the pit? Uh, let's see. Um, he and his brothers. Uh, look at page 248. Page 248. Look down at the bottom. They had sat down to eat. They've decided not to kill him. And they sat down to eat. And then a caravan of Ishmaelites traveling from Gilead with laudanum, balm, and mastic, and they were heading down to Egypt. Spice merchants. Judah then said to his brothers, How will it profit us if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let us rather sell him to the Ishmaelites, then our hand will not be on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers heeded them. So he talked them out of murdering him, but they sold him. And they sold him for 20 pieces of silver, and they carried Joseph off to Egypt. Um, and then Reuben came back to the pit, who had said, do not kill him. And now he says, where's the boy? He's not there. Because Reuben is still the firstborn. Mm -hmm. He's only going to be discredited later in the book later. of Genesis. 
So they slaughtered a goat, took Joseph's coat and dipped the coat in the blood. They carried the coat of many colors and brought it to their father. They said, we found this. Do you recognize it? Does that ring a bell, anybody? What does Tamar's message send? Do you recognize these? So when, when the Torah does that, it's linking the two stories. Not only that, what did she demand as payment from Judah? Noah, a baby goat, a gdi, chadgadja. And so uh, here, in the story before, they kill a goat, they cover Joseph's coat with the goat's blood, and then they bring the coat to Jacob and say, Father, do you recognize this? They say it uh, uh, disingenuously, right? Do you recognize this? They stole the coat too. They didn't even sell him with the coat. They took it and they yeah, took the yeah. coat and they sold it. He recognized it. it. My son's coat, a wild animal, has devoured him. Joseph has been ripped to shreds. And his father went into 20 years of mourning. That's what, until he sees Joseph again. One he, piece of silver for each year. One piece of silver for each year. <laughs> That's interesting. That may be true. Because he's in, he, it, they make it clear that Joseph is apart for 20 years and 20 pieces of silver. That's interesting. Are these the two goats for Yom Kippur? You have the goat that gets Whoa, redeemed. I don't know. Gets redeemed, one goat gets redeemed mm, and, one, and one gets killed. Two goats. One gets killed and, and the blood one gets shed and the other is sent out into the wilderness and, and is killed. Only in the Mishnah. Not in the Torah. Really? The they goat, don't throw them down there? That's in the Mishnah. As it, descri- it elaborates on it. But in the Torah, that goat at Yom Kippur, the scapegoat? Except in the stone edition. That. <laughs> in the sto- in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter um, 16, which describes the ancient Yom Kippur ceremony, there it's it, the the Aaron is instructed to take two goats. Aaron's instructed to take two goats. <sighs> and one goat is as an atonement, which and that goat is going to be slaughtered to atone for the people's sins. The other goat is everyone's going to, Aaron's going to lay their, his hands on the goat, and it's called the scapegoat, and he's going to place all the sins of the people on that second goat, and that goat is then going to be set, led out into the wilderness, into the uncharted wilderness, away from the camp. That's all it says. The killing of it is something that seems to have come into practice at a later, much later date. So is there any connection between the scapegoat taking the sins away and the custom of Tashlech? Throwing your sins away? I don't know. I bet there is. Um, sounds that way, doesn't it? Just cleansing yourself. Anyway, that's, those are the two goats that Karen is thinking of. And we have in this story, in chapter 37, a goat that gets slaughtered and the blood spilled. And in um, chapter 38, a goat that is redeemed as payment uh, to 
Tamar. So that's fascinating to think about. Thank you. Um, so Judah, who tricks his father, sends, deceives his father, um, sends his father into 20 years of mourning over the death of his son, we then hear a story about Judah, who loses two sons, and who then, I can understand this, refuses to risk the life of his baby son, of his and, youngest son. And he's deceived by his daughter-in-law. And he's deceived by his daughter-in-law, because this is the way the Torah works, until he, un and even with the same words, do you recognize these when he's shown his signet ring and staff? At that moment, can you imagine Judah seeing his life flash before his eyes and realizing what he did to his father and what he's done now? And that's why he says, you're right. This appears to be a moment of transformation for Judah. Why might we surmise this? Because, And that's why I'm thinking about the children's names are burst forth and shine in the story of Judah. Because the next thing that happens when they go down to Egypt during the famine, 20 years later, and Joseph tests Judah by saying, give me Benjamin, who is Rachel's other son. In other words, Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel's other son. Give me Benjamin, and he frames Benjamin, by putting the goblet, uh, the silver goblet in his sack and then bringing them all back and says, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to punish the innocent, only the guilty. And he looks and he finds, of course, the goblet in Benjamin's cup and he says, I'll just keep him here. You guys go in peace. And there's that moment. That's the end of Parshat Miketz. It's like, <laughs> and then that's, uh, is that next week? Yeah, and then... The next portion, Vayigash, which means he approached. It says, and Judah approached Joseph and said, my father, I've all, we've already bereaved my father once. He doesn't know it's Joseph, remember. He, makes, he says, he makes this impassioned speech. I will not allow that to happen again. Take me, but let Benjamin go. At that point, it says, and Joseph could no longer control himself, and he burst into tears and said, I'm Joseph. It's the best story. <laughs> it's the best story. This chapter seems to serve the pivotal purpose of Judah learning the harsh lessons and growing from them so that he can recognize the harm he's caused. And so that the next time the opportunity comes to make sure a child doesn't, doesn't die, he's ready to give his own life. It's very dramatic, and I think, actually, I'll stand by that interpretation and why chapter 38 is right there. Bob? I want to back up. Perhaps I should know this, but I don't. Uh, what in the story uh, leads Judah to believe that the two sons that he lost were due to the marriage with... Um, Only that they die. But there's no other... No, he said, and, and there doesn't have to be an explanation because all he says is, I'm not giving Shayla to this girl. He just doesn't want to risk... Yeah, yeah. 
No, there's no explanation. It's just how you might react, uh, I think. Oh, I kind of get it. It's like, let's say, I'm, forget it. I'm not following this law if t- two of my children. Yeah. I'm, but it's superstition. It happens one right after another. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob and Shelley? There's a, a, a strain of deception that also runs through this chapter. Right. Uh, Tamar deceives Judah. Because she hides behind the veil. Mm-hmm. Judah deceives his father, Jacob. Correct. Jacob deceives his father, Isaac. That's right. By saying he's Esau. Mm-hmm. So the, the whole line of deception. That's right. But Judah makes a correction. Judah makes a correction. In Parshat Vayigash. Yes. And I would say that Judah, and then Joseph responds and says, God must have had a plan so that I would be in a position to save your lives. And so, in my reading of the whole book of Genesis, the first siblings in Genesis are Cain and Abel. And Cain is jealous of his brother Abel and kills him. And when God says, Cain, where is your brother Abel? Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? That is the question that launches our story. You could say that Judah and Joseph, towards at the end of the book of Genesis, answer the question the way God has been waiting for it to be answered. Um, do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So I see both, I see narratives that cover three chapters, I see narratives that cover 13 chapters, and I see narratives that cover the entire book. That's part of why I love this, because uh, I think it, all those all those interweavings are present. Yes, Harris? I don't, I don't remember that. Remember to talk louder. I remember the part uh, uh, the earlier uh, when, but I was just wondering if it was covered yet or when it would be covered where uh, the, the younger guy, he, um, he caused his father a lot of pain and anguish for 20 years. And he wouldn't give it, he wouldn't do it anymore. He would, because... Judah, you're talking about. Right, yeah. because he loved his father. And they loved their son. And they loved their father, they loved the son, the son loved the father, the father loved the son. At what point do men show they love women? Oh, Is it well. What happened in this first part? Well, first, first of all, first of all uh, let, let, I just want to respond to the fir- something first, and then I'll yeah, answer your yeah. question, which is that. Um, Judah loves his father, but, was, but only until he himself had experienced bereavement was he able to empathize with his father. And that's, so it's, there's, there's a lot of growing that has to happen here. Joseph also grows and changes. So loving women, um, it, it appears that, uh, uh, you know, it says Jacob loved Rachel and Isaac loved Rebecca and Abraham. No, no, it says it in, these, in their stories. I mean, after 249? Before. Before. In the, oh, so I just missed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, they make their affection clear. Because there was no, because uh, I have a stepdaughter and I have love for her, and this woman in this, in this current thing, 
nobody really cares about her, and she doesn't really show any affection for them, and none for her. And about Tamar, the yeah, Tamar, yeah, the Tamar character. Nobody's loving Tamar. She's on her own. It's all the letter of the law, uh, controlling money, uh, trickery. That's right. But there's no affection, and I know back then because you just said it that people love other people. Well, so I would posit. So I would purposely left it out. I would suggest that it's the the human character's failings that leave Tamar totally on her own and left to her own resources. And I'd say, I think you could make a very, I think you could make a very strong case, and I, 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 would, I would go this way, that one of the thrusts of the Torah is not only am I my brother's keeper, but that you have to care for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And so the fact that it's the powerless one that is the one who, actually is the one God needs to move this story forward indicates that the, the heroes of our story are missing the boat, which is what frequently, remember we were talking about that last week about Jacob, that these are human beings and that's, that's what makes these stories so compelling. So yeah, Tamar's, do you want to add something to that? Well, I would say we love Tamar. Mm -hmm. um, Tamar means date palm. It's, it's the date. It's the fruit of this plant that grows in the driest, most arid places. Oh, what a great name she has. And so there's something in who she is that we love her. It's not necessarily that there's anyone in the story who's doing her justice, but we just hear her name and we salivate. Right. We get That's right. Think about Psalm 92. Sadiq Katamar Yifra. Of the righteous flourish like the Tamar, like the date palm giving forth fruit even into old age. So, yes, there's something about the Tamar that's beloved and that bespeaks of a fertility and a richness and a sweetness. And, the, you know, the failings of these people to recognize it is their failing. Yeah. We see their failing. And that's we see their failing, and then our job is to see it in ourselves. That's what these stories are supposed to be moving in us. Yes? Yeah, just two things. I, well, in talking about Tamar... I think it's the unloved that we are so connected to going all the way from Hagar being thrown out to Leah, to Dina, to Tamar. It's all these very unloved women who become our heroines in a way. And so that was just one thing. Nice. You know, we're all connected to these very unloved people who want nothing but to be loved. And who are the unloved in Egypt? Our ancestors, the right. slaves. Uh huh. And the other thought I had was, if I'm thinking of it correctly, with Judah, he developed by, he lost two sons. Two sons. And then he developed as a human being because he he sort of, though he did a terrible thing, he refused to kill his brother because yes. he knew the loss of your child was so devastating. He didn't and know that yet. Not yet. Right, but he intuited it. Causality okay. is in the future. All right, and then again he said, take me, right? Yeah. Take me, Take me to Joseph, who he thinks is the Pharaoh's vizier, right. who is the Pharaoh, but he doesn't recognize him. Right, mm -hmm. because he doesn't want to cause that pain to his father. Right. 
So it kind of. Yeah, 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 very rich. Yes? How many red threads are there in, in these things? Because in, I know people in, who study Kabbalah. Where in Kabbalah red? and much older, even in just. Uh, Beyond Kabbalah, this tying a red thread uh, yeah, is supposed to ward off um, the yeah, evil my spirits. Tore it up, tied one on the carriage. Oh, my yeah. mother, a red bendel. Yeah. You had a red bendel on the. Sure. On, yes. on all my children's cribs, Carriages. there was a red bendel. Yeah, yeah so it's a folk tradition way beyond Kabbalah. You know, it's, it goes way back. Yeah, so that red thread probably goes back all the way to here and beyond. It's a really ancient custom, my goodness. Thanks for mentioning that. In the few minutes that we have left, I want to expand this a little bit to think about, because um, I was thinking about the line of King David. Um, and in the Book of Ruth, which you don't have, the Book of Ruth isn't included in the Chumash, so I have my Tanakh here, which is the Hebrew Bible, the full Hebrew Bible, not just the five books of Moses, that um, in that story, uh, it's a beautiful story. Um, book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, um, uh, let's see, um, there's a famine, and uh, a man of Bethlehem in Judah and his wife and two sons go to reside in the country of Moab, which is on the other side of the Jordan and of the Dead Sea. Uh, and uh, the Moabites are cousins of the Israelites because they are descendants of Lot. Not to mention, Lot, when they, he and his daughters ran away from Sodom and Gomorrah, and his daughters thought the world had ended, and they got their father drunk, and they had him sleep with them so that they could become pregnant because they thought they had to repopulate the world. Good stories in the Bible, huh? But again, it's a story of a, the Lot. It's another motif of the father unknowingly coupling with, uh, right. in that case, his daughter. So anyway, that's Moab. <laughs> that's really that's incest. Really immoral. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's universally immoral. Uh-huh. Anyway, so his, her two sons are named Machlon and Chilion, which mean illness and sickness. Oh, that's her God. kid's name. Wow. They marry, two, they marry uh, uh, a woman named Orpah and a woman named Ruth. And then the husbands die, and the women are left without children. And Orpah decides to go back to her family's house, just like Tamar goes back to her parents' house once she's widowed. Um, but Ruth says, no, Naomi, I want to go with you. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. One of this beautiful statement. And so Ruth goes with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And they have to find a kinsman. Um, to, uh, so it's a similar story, which is why I'm sharing it with you, because it has to do again with King David lineage. You have to find a kinsman to fulfill the marriage responsibilities so that uh, Ruth's late husband has uh, descendants. And one, one, uh, they find one cousin who you did have the right to opt out, it turns out. If, and it's a whole ritual involving like taking off your sandal and spitting on the ground and say, we're not, we don't have time for that right now. It's very, very uh, picturesque. And he says no, but then Boaz, who is another kinsman, a wealthy kinsman who 
uh, says, uh, and the story unfolds. He doesn't say yes, but the story unfolds. And Boaz is very kind to Ruth. And then Ruth lays with him and they get married. And, you know, to make, to make the story very short, um, there's a lot of kindness in this story. And then it says, Boaz married Ruth and she bore a son. And the woman said, Blessed be the Lord who has not withheld a redeemer from you today. May his name be perpetuated in Israel. Uh, and Naomi took the child and held it to her bosom. And uh, Naomi, the mother-in-law. And uh, they named him Oved. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So it's Oved is the grandfather of David. And this is the line of Peretz. This is how the book of Ruth ends. Peretz begot Chetron, Chetron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nachshon, the famous Nachshon. The one who walked mm -hmm. in the water. Nachshon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, Boaz begot Oved, Oved begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Oh, is it ten? Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They like ten. Ten generations, that's right. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, in the book of Ruth, um, Peretz's descendant also, so King David is the offspring of, um, first of all, think of Tamar, a Canaanite woman who uh, has to do whatever she had to do to ensure that the lineage would continue. And then this Moabite woman who does everything in her power to ensure that the line continues. And David is part Canaanite, part Moabite. Part. There's something about the Torah and the fact that, again, somehow the, less, the least among us is actually beloved by God because David means beloved. That's what David means. Um, so when you then look at David's appearance when he first appears in the book of Samuel, just Ruth a, is a um, summer solstice story. So Ruth's a summer solstice story, right? Time of winter and summer. <laughs> we have the other side of it. Thank you. Cool. But what I always find, or in, and I don't find interesting about the way we do that story, is um, like Boaz is really doesn't give get his the status I think he should. Boaz, he, yeah, he he's well feels, in the story itself. He's treated. Yeah. But when we, you know, he's never kind of lauded. Right, and Boaz yeah, is a hero. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's a real prince. He's a real he is. So now listen to this. Um, Samuel, the prophet who anoints kings, has anointed King Saul, who is a head, head and shoulders taller than everyone else, red hair, and but it turns out external appearances and big, big being big and strong don't seem to be where it's at. So lis listen to this part. Um, and then it'll be time to quit. Uh, oh, I want to find that part. Um, oh, Samuel arrives looking, having been told by God to go to Jesse. Uh, and uh, fill your horn with oil and set out because one of his sons is to be the king. 
one of Jesse's sons. So Samuel has this prophecy. He comes to Bethlehem, uh, and uh, they come out, and he, they arrived, and he saw Eliab, the oldest son, who was big and tall and beautiful, and he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed one. But the Lord said to Samuel, pay no attention to his appearance or his stature. For not as man sees does the Lord see. Man sees only what is visible, but the Lord sees into the heart. Wow. wow. Isn't that a great line? Yeah, and if you want to look that up, that is the book, first book of Samuel, chapter 16, verse 7. I'll read it again. The Lord said to Samuel, Pay no attention to his appearance or his stature, for I have rejected him. For it is not as man sees that the Lord sees. Man sees only what is visible, but the Lord sees into the heart. Then Jesse called Avinadab, the next brother, and said, no. And Shama, no. Thus Jesse presented seven of his sons before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel said, are these all the boys you have? <laughs> and he replied, well, there is still the youngest, the runt. He's tending the flock. Cinderella. And Samuel said to Jesse, <laughs> Samuel said to Jesse, we studied the book of Samuel a few years ago. It is the best. Samuel said to Jesse, send someone to bring him, for he will not sit down to eat until he gets here. So they sent and brought him, and he was ruddy-cheeked and bright-eyed. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Uh, so, again, the Torah, the Jewish story is this interesting story about the least, the least among us. Didn't we also have that conversation about the inside and the outside beauty when we talked about Jacob and Esau? Oh, that's right. Yes. Leah and Rachel. Yes. That's right. Oh, thank you for remembering that. That Leah had eyes that were tender, but Rachel was beautiful and comely. And Jacob is like, you know, because he's a guy, was like, love Rachel. And but Leah it turns out to be the linchpin. Um, and that is what the Torah does over and over and over and over again. It's so Judah fascinating. Is son. Judah is Leah's son, and Judah is Leah's son, and Judah's name means, remember, I thank you. I am grateful for bringing me this child. Yeah. Wow. Okay, let's stop there. Uh, we're not going to meet next week. Sorry. Uh, I'm, I'll miss it too, uh, but I need a week. So um, we will meet again Thursday in the beginning of January. What day of the week is that going to be? The third, do you think so? No, it's like the, the fifth. The fifth. So I'll so we'll do this in two weeks. Thank you, everybody. That was such a pleasure. Here's the basket for your contributions in honor of our study together.